A Thousand Miles Up the Nile, Section 51. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. A Thousand Miles Up the Nile by Amelia B. Edwards. Chapter 17. The Second Cataract, Part 3. We stayed at Wadi Halfa but one night, and paid but one visit to the cataract. We saw no crocodiles, though they are still plentiful among those rocky islets. The M.B.s, who had been here a week, were full of crocodile stories, and of Alfred's deeds of arms. He had stalked and shot a monster two days before our arrival, but the creature had rushed into the water when hit, waving its tail furiously above its head, and had neither been seen nor heard of since. Like Achilles, the crocodile has but one vulnerable spot, and this is a small, unarmored patch behind the forearm. He will take a good deal of killing even there, unless the bullet finds its way to a vital part, or is of the diabolical kind called explosive. Even when mortally wounded, he seldom drops on the spot. With his last strength, he rushes to the water and dies at the bottom. After three days the carcass rises and floats, and our friends were now waiting in order that Alfred might bag his big game. Too often, however, the poor brute either crawls into a hole, or, in his agony, becomes entangled among weeds and comes up no more. For one crocodile bagged, a dozen regain the river, and, after lingering miserably under water, die out of sight and out of reach of the sportsmen. While we were climbing the rock of Abu Sir, our men were busy taking down the big sail and preparing the filet for her long and ignominious journey downstream. We came back to find the mainyard laid along like a roof-tree above our heads. The sail rolled up in a huge ball and resting on the roof of the kitchen, the small after-sail and yard hoisted on the mainmast, the oars lashed six on each side, and the lower deck a series of yawning chasms every alternate plank being taken up so as to form seats and standing-places for the rowers. Thus dismantled, the dahabiyah becomes, in fact, a galley. Her oars are now her chief motive power, and a crew of steady rowers, having always the current to their favour, can do thirty miles a day. When, however, a good breeze blows from the south, the small sail and the current are enough to carry the boat well along, and then the men reserve their strength for rowing by night when the wind has dropped. Sometimes, when it is a dead calm and the rowers need rest, the dahabiyah is left to her own devices, and floats with the stream, now waltzing ludicrously in the middle of the river, now drifting sidewise like Mr. Winkle's horse, now sidling up to the east bank, now changing her mind and blundering over to the west, making upon average about a mile and a half or two miles an hour, and presenting a pitiful spectacle of helpless imbecility. At other times, however, the headwind blows so hard that neither oars nor current avail, and then there is nothing for it but to lie under the bank and wait for better times. This was our sad case in going back to Abu Simbel. Having struggled with no little difficulty through the first five and twenty miles, we came to a deadlock about half-way between Faras and Gaboleh Shems. Carried forward by the stream, driven back by the wind, buffeted by the waves, and bumped incessantly by the rocking to and fro of the felucca, our luckless filet, after oscillating for hours within the space of a mile, was run at last into a sheltered nook, and there left in peace till the wind should change or drop. 
Imprisoned here for a day and a half, we found ourselves, fortunately, within reach of the tumuli which we had already made up our minds to explore. Making first for those on the east bank, we took with us in the felucca four men to row and dig, a fire-shovel, a small hatchet, an iron bar, and a large wicker basket, which were the only implements we possessed. What we wanted both then and afterwards, and what no dahabiyah should ever be without, were two or three good spades, a couple of picks, and a crowbar. Climbing to the top of one of the highest of these hillocks, we began by surveying the ground. The desert here is firm to the tread, flat, compact, and thickly strewn with pebbles. Of the fine yellow sand which characterizes the Libyan bank, there is little to be seen, and that little lies like snow in drifts and clefts and hollows, as if carried thither by the wind. The tumuli, however, are mounded of pure alluvial mould, smooth, solid, and symmetrical. We counted thirty-four of all sizes, from five to about five and thirty feet in height, and saw at least as many more on the opposite side of the river. Selecting one of about eight feet high, we then set the sailors to work, and although it was impossible with so few men and such insufficient tools to cut straight through the centre of the mound, we at all events succeeded in digging down to a solid substratum of lumps of crude clay, evidently moulded by hand. Whether these formed only the foundation of the tumulus, or concealed a grave excavated below the level of the desert, we had neither time nor means to ascertain. It was something at all events to have convinced ourselves that the mounds were artificial. As we came away we met a Nubian peasant trudging northwards. He was leading a sorry camel, had a white cockerel under his arm, and was followed by a frightened woman who drew her shawl over her face and cowered behind him at the sight of the Ingleza. We asked the men what the mounds were and who made them, but he shook his head and said they had been there from old time. We then inquired by what name they were known in these parts to which, urging his camel forward, he replied hesitatingly that they had a name, but he had forgotten it. Having gone a little way, however, he presently turned back, saying that he now remembered all about it, and that they were called the Horns of Yakma. More than this we could not get from him. Who Yakma was, or how he came to have horns, or why his horns should take the form of tumuli, was more than he could tell or we could guess. We gave him a small bakshish, however, in return for this mysterious piece of information, and went our way with all possible speed, intending to row across and see the mounds on the opposite bank before sunset. But we had not calculated upon the difficulty of either threading our way among a chain of sandbanks, or going at least two miles farther north, so as to get round into the navigable channel at the other side. We of course tried the shorter way, and after running aground some three or four times, had to give it up, hoist our little sail, and scud homewards as fast as the wind would carry us. Coming back thus, after an excursion in the felucca, is one of the many pleasant things that one has to remember of the Nile. The sun has set, the afterglow has faded, the stars are coming out. Leaning back with a satisfied sense of something seen or done, one listens to the old dreamy chant of the rowers, and to the ripple under the keel. The palms, meanwhile, glide past, and are seen in bronzed relief against the sky. Presently the big boat, all glittering with lights, looms up out of the dusk. A cheery voice hails from the poop. We glide under the bows. Half a dozen smiling brown faces bid us welcome, and as many pairs of brown hands are outstretched to help us up the side. 
a savoury smell is wafted from the kitchen, a pleasant vision of the dining-saloon, with table ready spread and lamps ready lit, flashes upon us through the open doorway. We are at home once more. Let us eat, drink, rest, and be merry, for to-morrow the hard work of sight-seeing and sketching begins again. End of section 51